Happy Mother's Day to all you moms, grandmas, great-grandmas who are here. Uh, you guys, happy Mother's Day to all those moms and grandmas here. Uh, uh, Gar- Garth prayed it, and, and Vince said it too. I mean, we, we literally would not be here if it weren't for you guys. And so we, we thank you. We thank you for that. Um, my, my mom's not here. I, um, I was a, a kid that was raised by several women, and so this morning I had a lot of phone calls um, and a lot of me telling them how much I appreciate them. Um, my wife, um, who's a mother of my two sons, in some ways sometimes a mother of me, and so I was thanking her this morning as well. And want to thank you all. Um, there's a lot of moms here, a lot of new moms, a lot of moms who have little ones inside their room right now. And so we are excited. Some of you guys are, um, I'm going to have you stand up right now. Actually, all the moms, would you stand up? Um, all the moms right now, will you guys stand up? <laughs> if you're a mom in this room, will you stand up? Yes. Well, what we have for you guys, as we said last week, is there's going to be opportunities for you guys to take pictures with your family. We have some pheno- phenomenal photographers here that would love to take pictures of you and your family. And so after the service, you'll see some booths there uh, to be able to just take a picture. It should be really quick. And then you also get a handout. And on that handout, we'll give you information where to download that picture for free. And so make sure you take that picture. Um, if you're here you're with your grandparent, or grandparents or you have kids or you have a kid on the way, take advantage of that. If you're here and you're single and you just want a picture, because one day you want to be a mom, take that, go ahead, take it. Take advantage of it, right? Take advantage of it. So um, let, me, let, me, let me also do this because as exciting as a day uh, that today could be, um, sometimes it's hard for some of us because some of us have um, lost children. Um, some of us have been trying to have children and not have been able to uh, have kids. And, and so a day like this can bring a lot of excitement. And yet, and sometimes there could be memories that are, that are not always as exciting. And so we want to be conscious of that as well. And so um, what I want to do is pray for all the moms and also pray for those of you who are here that would like to be pregnant and have not been able to. We do believe that God does miracles. And also to pray for those of you who are um, in this season maybe mourning. Uh, we do believe that God is a comforter and a healer. So would you guys all bow your heads and pray with me as we pray for our moms and our future moms and um, those who have lost loved ones. Father, we thank you so much um, that you are a father, one. And Father, that you've given us great moms. And Father, we, we thank you for the women in this room and those who are representing our church that are new moms, Lord, that are learning what it means to be a mother. Um, those over here that have been moms for years, that have raised children and have seen the heartache, the pain, the joys, the fun, the good times and the bad times of what it means to be a mother. And for those who have endured faithfully that are here that are grandmothers, Lord, that have poured into their children and watching their children pour into their children, Lord, um, we know that you are a God who loves to see generations and loves to see faith handed down. And so we thank you for the faithful women of Redemption Tempe. And God, we ask that your blessing will be upon them. Father, I do pray for those who it seems to be medically and maybe physically that the womb has been closed, Lord, that you, by, by your spirit and by the power of the, of the gospel, the restorative power of the gospel would open up wombs and that they would get life. For those who are in the adoption process, Lord, that you would help them raise the funds that they need to raise to adopt the kids that you, before the foundation of this world, knew that they would have. And Father, for those who are here who are mourning, Father, I pray for comfort and for healing. And as we talk about your son Jesus today, Lord, that your spirit would impress upon us all the goodness and the greatness of the joy of knowing Jesus. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Hey, before we, before we uh, continue in our series, I, I want to bring... Uh, 
Um, just give you guys an update on Flagstaff, and so I'm going to bring the happiest pastor in all redemption up, Vince Garvey. So would you guys join me in welcoming Vince as Vince comes to the stage. Wow, happiest. Yay. <laughs> um, you know what, if we could actually, uh, if we could put the video on right now, and then, uh, and then I'll just talk about that just for a minute. So we just filmed this. It's pretty great. I'm happy about it. As the Transcontinental Railroad moved west, towns sprang up and waned with the construction. Camps became cities seemingly overnight, only to be faced with the realities of their own isolation. Before the middle of last century, traveling across country meant meandering road trips from small town to small town, all along the way experiencing every facet of America. Flagstaff is the product of a bygone era. It's been many different towns throughout its history. Once a bustling railroad hub to the Wild West and an iconic stop along historic Route 66. From all over this great nation, people have come to Flagstaff, some staying for a few days, others for a few years. Today, tens of thousands pass through Flagstaff on their way to the Grand Canyon. Many move up from Phoenix to live and retire. Thousands of young adults come up for a great college education. This city moves and breathes with the coming and going of their population, passing through this crossroads of the West. Despite its comings and goings, Flagstaff is a friendly community. Everywhere you go, you get the sense that neighbors actually know each other. Yet, less than 10% of the city's population regularly attends church. Flagstaff is a place of transition. It's always been that way. Whether the people are here to retire or get a college education or even come up just for the weekend, they need Jesus and they need a community that's going to help grow their faith. Redemption Church is committed to bringing the unchanging good news of Jesus Christ to the state of Arizona. Our vision is to see thousands of people worshiping Jesus and living out the gospel all over our state, equipped with the same message and living out the same kingdom values every day. Redemption Flagstaff seeks to join in the work that God's already begun here, to see the gospel take root in a city that desperately needs a new kind of hope. We long to see people moved towards a life of knowing and following Jesus Christ. We long to see this city redeemed socially, economically, and spiritually. We understand that by ourselves, Redemption Flagstaff is not the answer, but we do believe we're called to be part of it. We're called to be more than a place, but rather a gospel-centered people who realize that all of life is all for Jesus. Even though the Wild West and Route 66 are now history, Arizona remains as interconnected as ever, and what happens here affects the rest of the state. Just as Flagstaff was once a hub of transportation, let's now work to make it a beacon of hope for all who pass through. It's through community that new communities are born, and so I'd ask that you partner with us in four ways. Would you pray? Would you give? Would you share in what God's doing? And would you consider joining us and being part of Redemption Flagstaff? All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let me just say this, I think some of the guys are here, but the video team, David Hildreth, Silas Kyler, those guys, just do amazing work, and they do it all as volunteers, and so let's do one more round of applause for them, because they're amazing. Yeah. 
So uh, just real quick, I just want to highlight a few things. It, when we were actually up there filming this deal, uh, so many people came up to us and were just kind of curious what was going on because they saw the cameras, they saw the booms and all these other things I don't really know anything about. But they're asking, hey, what, what are you doing? Um, and it was amazing to see their faces almost instantaneously change the moment we told them we were there to start a church. Right? There was this excitement, and then they heard church, and there was immediate, yeah, that's dumb. One guy said that was dumb. And in the moment, right, in the moment, we're, we're receiving this criticism, and there's, I'm kind of like, man, this, this is no good. But then I realized later that night, that's exactly why we're going, right? That's, that's exactly why we're going, because people who are far from God, God wants to draw near. And so that's why we're going to Flagstaff. And so um, we do have a few things. In the back, we have this prospectus. Um, it's incredible. John Ashcroft and our creative team put it together. It's a little trifold deal. Kind of highlights a little of the stuff you saw in the video and a little bit more of our vision. So I encourage you, pick one of those up. We've got tons of them. And so grab one and see how you can uh, continue to pray for us, partner with us. And then um, the other ways that we, that we really want you to partner as Redemption Church is really through prayer and, and, and giving as well. But here's what happens with prayer. Prayer becomes the default response because you don't want to give. And, and here's the deal. It will be, hey, will you partner with us? Yeah, I'm not going to give, but I'll pray. And that, you know what? If that's true, that is amazing. And here's what we're going to do. We have a six-month prayer guide we want you to pray through, okay? Because we believe in the power of prayer. We believe that if a gospel-centered people get on their knees before God, that big things will happen. Okay? And so this thing will outline every week a different theme, every day a different thing to pray for, and then devotions for you guys to go through individually, corporately, with the church, the whole deal. Okay, So we've only got like 300 of these. So if you're going to pray through it, I want you to take one. It can be free. If you want to leave a donation just for cost, you can, but only if you're going to pray through it because we only have so many. Okay, And so pray, pray, pray. And then give, share, and join if that's part of you. I'm going to pray now for us and for our time and for Pastor Ricardo as he brings the word of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we do get to pray. We thank you that we have the opportunity to lift these things up to you and the trust that you will go before us in everything. And so specifically for today, God, would you go before us and would you penetrate hearts with the truth of the gospel this morning through Pastor Ricardo, God, and through the ongoing mission of Redemption Church in this state and in this world. God, we love you and we praise you in your name. Amen. 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 Hey, let's jump into the text. Um, I, was, I was told it's Mother's Day, so keep it short. And so I'm going to try really, really hard to uh, keep it short. But um, it's hard to put a time limit on a, on a black pastor. It's like kryptonite. So I will try as best as I can. So... If you, have, if you need a Bible, raise your hand and keep it raised really, really high so one of the guys can be able to get you a Bible. Uh, we're going to start here in John chapter 3, verse 16. Not sure if you've ever heard of it, but that's where we're going to be at this morning. Um, as we wrap up this series, who is this? Um, again, just to recap, we spent five weeks trying to say, what does it mean to encounter Jesus? If we're going to be a church that says and preaches that all of life is all for Jesus, then we need to know Jesus, and we need to know what it means to encounter Jesus, and what does it mean as a community to encounter Jesus. And so for five, four weeks, we've been looking at it, and we'll wrap up today. Um, week one, we asked the question, essentially, who is this who raises from the dead? And then who is this who exposes darkness? Who is this that knew no sin? And who is this who takes away the sin of the world? And the question we're asking today is, how do I know God? How do I encounter God? Now, before you check out if you're here, if you're a Christian, 
The, the danger would be knowing that we're going to talk about John 3.16 and that, that proceeds that is to go, oh, this must be a week for people who don't know God. I can check out. Absolutely not. Um, I'm convinced that this passage is just as much for Christians as it is for those of us in the room that don't believe in Jesus. And so three questions we'll, we'll, we'll ask essentially how to know God, um, what distracts us from God, and then lastly, how do we draw near to God? So again, John chapter 3, verse 16. Before we do that, um, as always, like, Lord, did you guys bow your heads with me? Let's ask God to illuminate the scripture that his spirit may come down upon us. Father, we thank you so much. And I pray that you would help my words to be clear. And Lord, I pray that more than anything, that you would remove me, that we may see your cross. As we come to a very familiar passage, Lord, God, I just pray that you would convict us and that you would stir in us an affection for your son, Jesus, that we see that he has come, he has lived, he has died, and he's raised again, and so we may know you. And so, Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Last night, I got a phone call um, about 930 um, I was getting a lot of phone calls around 9.30 because I said last week I'm a Laker fan and the Lakers were losing to the Nuggets. And um, was, I cre- was I crying? Was I sweating? Absolutely. And so I just ignore all those texts that you guys were texting me. Um, this particular call came from my sister's house. Um, and, and I would love to say that my family's Laker fans, but they hate me and they hate the Lakers as well too. So I ignored that. Um, checked the voice message, and it was my little nephew, um, and I can tell that he was shaking as he, as he left the voice message. It says, can you please give me a call? I have a really important question to ask you. He's 10. And so I called him back, and I said, what's up? And he goes, I'm afraid of getting older because I'm afraid of dying. And I thought, okay, pause the game, all right? And I said, well, why are you afraid of getting older? And I just kind of walked through some questions with him. And, and he says, well, eventually when people get older, don't they die? And I said, yeah, people, people get older, people die. Sometimes people die when they're young. And I said, what, what are you worried about? He goes, I just don't know where I'm going to go when I, when I die. And I said, well, where do you think you're going to go when you die? He goes, well, at church they say if we believe in Jesus, that he forgives our sins, and that he died on the cross, and he, raised, he was raised from the temple. And I said, well, John Tay, it's the tomb, not the temple, but whatever. I get what you're saying. Um, and and he, and, he, and, he, and he says, okay, yeah, the tomb. And, and, and he goes, but I believe that, and it, and it says that we will live forever with God, and yet sometimes it's hard for me to believe that. And I thought, and I told him, you know what? Sometimes it's hard for me to believe that too. Um, sometimes it's hard for even me. And he goes, but you were a pastor. And I said, every single person who believes in Jesus, every single Christian at some level has doubts about something of Christianity. It's true. At some point in your life, there, there's a doubt whether someone asks you a really, really good question that you can't answer, or a tragedy happens in your life, and you begin to question um, how much of this, this Bible, how much of God, how much of Jesus um, actually pertains to me. And, and I would say it's very healthy for Christians to challenge their own doubts. I, I think there's a danger, uh, especially for those of us who grew up around church, just to inherit faith from our parents or inherit faith from our friends or our roommates and not question what the Bible says. And not question to say, I don't believe it, but question where you don't believe. See, for me, my, my doubts were never intellectual. My, my doubts were never, did God create the world or not? My, my doubts had everything to do with morality. Here's what I mean. When I became a Christian, 
Um, I believe my understanding of salvation, my understanding of God sending Jesus was that God had reached into Tempe, Arizona in, in 2003, 2004, and had saved me from a lifestyle of manipulation, of lying, of sexual sin, of alcoholic abuse, uh, drug abuse, and, and so forth, and then changed my life that now my, my life was very moral, that I did exactly what the Bible told me to do. And so to me, Christianity and God, um, he drew near to people who had lifestyles like that. And, and then I was, I was asked a question by a very good friend of mine who was an atheist who was not just equally as moral, but morally superior to me. And, and one of the things she said is, why do I need God if I never did those things in the first place? The Bible, she goes, every time I hear and I hear stories about the Bible, it's always someone's life who is terrible, and then God saves them, and then they're doing good. Or when I hear testimonies or stories of my Christian friends, they say, I was living a wild, licentious life of partying, and then I came to Jesus, and now I don't do that anymore. And she goes, okay, if I've never done that, if I've never had sexual sins, if I give my money to the poor, if I do everything that your Christian God says to do, why do I need him? And that rocked me. It rocked me because even in the stories that we've shared so far, there's been some tragedy or some, some heinous sin. When we looked at the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, some of you say, well, I've never been caught in the act of adultery. Some of you may say, I've never committed adultery, right? And, 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 then, and then some of you would say, well, there's the woman who, who was at the well who had five husbands and the guy that she's living with now is not even her husband. I've never had a live-in boyfriend. And then, and then some say, well, I've never had a physical issue like the woman who was bleeding for 12 years. And so, so what does God communicate to me? And a lot of you, that's your story. It's the same story that my wife has. My wife um, accepted Jesus when she was about four or five years old. She walked with Jesus when she went to college. She didn't have um, a rebellious time, and she still walks with Jesus. And one of the things we talk about is the idea of what pastors do and what churches do, the people that we put on the screen, the people that we put up here that tell God stories or redemption stories is, this is what I've done, this is what of a mess my life was, and then God saved me, and now I'm better. And what about the rest of us? So my doubts was that, like, how do I draw near to the Lord even when I'm doing what God calls me to do? Is the gospel and his grace um, sufficient? Would it make me worship? Would it draw me near to God, though I'm already doing what the Bible says? I think today we'll see that. Let me give some context of where we're picking up this, this morning in our passage. Um, previous to this, Jesus had been having an encounter and a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was that type of person. Nicodemus was a very moral person, a very religious person. He was a Pharisee. And what that means is, is he knew his Bible. Oftentimes what we do is we rag on Pharisees. We say they're legalists and so forth, which they are. But there's a part of um, the Pharisees that I can appreciate. They, they want to pursue the holiness of God. They, they want to pursue what's correct about God. Um, they just go a little too far and they add things to it. And so this man was an older man. This man was a wise man. This was a man who was a Bible teacher who understood his Bible. He was a very moral, upright person. And so when he comes to Jesus, he talks to Jesus about salvation. And then Jesus begins to dialogue him, and he doesn't get it. Jesus says, no, if you're going to know God, if you're going to be one with God, you have to be born again. And this man hears this. Nicodemus goes, born again? Well, you want me? Does that mean I have to go back inside my mom and then come out again? And Jesus goes, no, that'd be weird for her, for you, and everybody else, right? 
says, not, that's not what he's saying. He goes, the spirit has to, be, has to move, and the spirit is what, what makes people's eyes come open. And Jesus goes down in verses 14 and 15 to giving a picture and reminding Nicodemus of his story from the book of Numbers, how when the people of God had been plagued um, because of their sin, God sent judgment that they were getting bit by snakes. And the only way that they could be healed is that he commanded Moses to get a stick and put a brown serpent on it. And if they looked to the serpent, trusting that that was God's means of substitute, that they would be healed. So this whole dialogue happens with a very religious man. And Jesus is trying to say, in the same way that they were healed in the wilderness by looking to the serpent, the same way that they were able to connect with God um, in a much broader way, in a saving way, not just being healed, is that we have to look to Jesus. And so the first question um, um, is, how do I know God? Is answered in the first two verses of verses 16 through 17. Very famous, most famous passage in scripture. It reads, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We've heard that before. The, the, the picture here is the way that we will know God, the way that we can know God is only through Jesus. That is the claim of Christianity, that there's one way to the Father, there's one mediator between man and God, and that's Christ Jesus. The, the reason why this passage is on bumper stickers and on Tebow's eye black and on everything else that you see around here is, is because it's, it's a summary of the gospel. Another translation would be this. This is how God loved the world. The way that God loved the world is that he gave, which lets us know that love necessitates action, that God is not necessarily responding to us. God did not look at us in our situation and go, oh, poor humans, what can I do? But the bigger picture of the story of the Bible lets us know that before the foundations of this world, God desired to know you, that God desired to know us. God knowing in his infinite knowledge that after creation and when he created, that man would sin against him. And upon, upon man sinning against God, that there would be separation and it would leave us in a position that we would not have the ability to reach out for God. So God, before the foundation of this world, decided that he would send his son Jesus to be a substitute for our sin and to give us his righteousness. He knew that there would be no other way. And so the question is not, do we love God? The bigger question is, does God love us? And what we know to be true true from the gospel, what we know to be true of the Bible is absolutely. God did not have to enter into our mess. This was a calculated choice by God. And so the people, it's hard to find God. God can be found because God is seeking you. Some of you may be here for the first time this, this morning. Uh, you may have been to other churches, and I'm convinced, I'm always convinced, that if God's going to give me, usually 45 minutes, but today 32 minutes, to teach, um, that I have an opportunity to tell you about Jesus. Some of you have been here week after week after week, and you're devout Christians. You love Jesus. I have the opportunity, and I have the God-given responsibility to tell, to tell you God is after you. Okay? It's not so much about you being after God. That's good news for some of us, and that's bad news for some of us, right? But he will find you, and the way that we know him is through Jesus. Let me continue here to talk about why he sent Jesus. He sent Jesus because of our sin. It says here in verse 16 that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So there's a, there's a, he juxtaposes perishing with eternal life. 
Perishing is the idea of dying forever. It's absence from God. That's what hell is. The images that we have of hell are ragged clothes, gnashing of teeth, and fire, just American Idol reruns over and over and over again, right? That, 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 that there's, there's, there's an image of that, but whatever the image may be, it's absence from God forever. And so that's what he says. He goes, whoever believes will never have that. Whoever just, just placed their faith in Jesus won't have that, but they will have the exact opposite, eternal life. And I've been saying it week after week after week, eternal life doesn't only just communicate the duration, but the quality of life. Meaning there is a quality of life that comes in believing in Jesus that we don't have apart from God. There's a quality of life of a promised hope of eternity, but also that quality of life of having the presence of God here. And when I say quality of life, that doesn't mean the car you drive. It doesn't mean your family. It doesn't mean your kids will grow up to love Jesus. It doesn't mean that you're going to get that raise that you want. That, that, none of, that, that does, it doesn't mean that. The quality of life is when your kids walk away from God, when you get cancer, when you get sick, when, you get la- when, when people wrong you, that there's a presence of God there, that there's someone that you can draw to, someone you can draw near to, that as you suffer, that you have someone who not only suffered for you, but suffered with you in Christ Jesus. And so when it says eternal life, it means we have God now, and we will have God forever, meaning God doesn't lose his children God starts it, God sustains it, and God completes it. So if you want to know God, you can know God. If you're a Christian and you want to know more of God, you can know more of God because what we're communicating here is God's grace, his undeserved gift of what he gives to all who come to him. All. I love the whoever, and if you grew up King James, whosoever. I can't get that out of it. Every time I, I can't, there's certain memory verses that you just learn in certain translations, and I, I just want to say God so loveth the world so bad um, that he gave Jesus, and it's whoever. That means any type of person. Now, mind you, in the context here, he's talking to Nicodemus, who's a Jewish person who thinks that salvation is only for the Jews. And what Jesus is saying is, no, 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 it's for all types of people with all types of background, for the moralists and for the irreligious, um, for those who say that they believe in God their whole life, and for those who've never believed upon the gospel, it says that God gave Jesus for those types of people, all who would come in repentance and faith. Verse 17 says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, it says in verse 17 that God did not send Jesus in the world to condemn the world. That's true. But I, I want to point to something real quick. If you have your, your, hold your spot here and turn a couple pages to the right to John chapter 9. Um, I believe it's verse 39. Only so that we would see that there's not contradictions, though it may sound like it is. John chapter 9, verse 39 says this. Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see uh, may become blind. You know, that's not a nice thing to say, right? And so you have two things. You have Jesus says, no, I didn't come to condemn the world, and then Jesus saying, oh, I came to judge the world. Now, Seems like a contradiction, but what's happening is it's two sides of the same coin. Jesus is saying condemnation was already here. And so when I come and people reject me, when people reject the truth of the gospel, they are already condemned, therefore they're judged. Okay? There is judgment. And so how do we know God? By believing in Jesus. Because God sent him. 
It's the only way. There is no other way. This, this right here squashes the idea that if you grow up in another religion and you have a genuine heart that somehow God um, is obligated to save you. This, this says that the only way that we can come to know God, the only way for eternal life is in the work and through the work of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And then it comes to the next part of what distracts us from knowing God? What distracts the, the unbeliever? The person in this room who says, I don't really care. And then what, stra- what distracts the Christian? The person who says he cares, who, shares, who, who says she cares, and yet is distracted. Well, it's condemnation, which comes from our sin. Verse 18 says this, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Hold your spot there. There is a thought that people are born into this world neutral that you and I are neutral towards God. Meaning we're born in this world and either we're gonna go um, be pro-Jesus or we're gonna be anti-Jesus. However, the Bible doesn't communicate that. There's another thought that says that condemnation is something that God brings and it's something that he brings upon us. And yet, the Bible doesn't teach that either. The Bible teaches us that we were born into this world as sinners. Um, We were born um, in this world by nature and by choice, affected by sin, and also in ourselves, sinners. Um, The language that I would use is that we are naughty by nature. For some of you guys who listen to 80s rap music, right? We We are naughty by nature. And so that's the position that the Bible gives us there. And then when it comes to condemnation, God is not coming in this world to say, I'm bringing condemnation to you because that's what I wanted to place upon you. What brings us condemnation is our own sin. When Jesus says here and says you're condemned already, um, he communicates that further in verse 36, which is the last verse of this chapter, if you look at it with me. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. I mean, Jesus is giving an option here. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And that's not something that is comfortable to hear. But Ephesians chapter 2 says by nature that we were all children of wrath. As beautiful as as my my two boys are, and I think they're very beautiful, they're born into this world the same way I was born into this world, the same way that you were born in this world, that the wrath of God is hanging over us. That doesn't make God angry. It does not um, negate his love, but it shows his love. So, so often people say, I don't want a God of justice. I want a God of love. And you, you can't have one without the other. If we're going to have a God of love, then he has to bring justice. He, he has to execute justice on that which ravishes what he loves. Be- Becky Pippert says this best in her book. It's a, a book t- titled Hope Has Its Reasons. And she says this, think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. When when, when God goes after us, he's not just going after us because he doesn't love us. We have to understand our position as mankind, that we are sinners against him, and therefore we ravage his order. We ravage his harmony. We ravage his flourishing. We are a part of the problem. And and, in Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, he's got a great line in there, and he says, everyone wants to talk about who's the worst person in the world. 
Democrats think it's Republicans. Republicans think it's Democrats. Um, white people think it's black people. Black people think it's everybody. And, and there, there's a sense there where, where it's true. And, and there's a sense there where, where you always want to look to the worst person in the world. He goes, okay, if you think about the worst person in the world and you get him out of there, you get her out of there, you keep going on the line, eventually you get to yourself. And so that's where you have to start. That, that what's wrong with this world that you have to raise your hand and say, I have a part in this and I have a part in the decay of this world. That's what God is saying. Condemnation was already here. What distracts us is our sin because our sin blinds us. Our sin weakens us. And, and hear me, I'm not just talking to those who don't believe in Jesus. In fact, right now I'm talking to Christians. What gets in the way of our holiness, what gets in the way of us knowing God and walking with God is our sin. We, we, we all have particular sins in our life that we keep as pets. We all have particular sins that we run to given any uh, given circumstance. And here's what Jesus says about that. Um, continuing in verse 18, he says, But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And here is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to light, lest his works should be exposed. So there's a few things here that, that he talks about darkness here. The, the picture that he has is darkness and light. First, he says, this is distraction is our darkness. Sin in itself blinds us, as I said. And not only does it blind us, we become numb to it. What, what, what happens here when it says that we are, we are in darkness and we do wicked things and we do evil things, most of us check out and go, I'm not, that, I'm not a wicked person. I'm not an evil person, and so he cannot be talking about me. Um, personally, this was me before I became a Christian. I would have never thought I was a wicked person. I would have never thought I was an evil per- person. I don't think, to the best of my knowledge, anyone has ever called me a wicked person or evil person, but I was so far from God. I was doing my own thing. The, the best way to talk about life of darkness is you trying to control your life. You saying what's best for you apart from God. Because I think that some of us will get out of it and go, oh, wickedness, you mean like murder? You mean like stealing, okay, I don't murder people, I don't steal people, I don't cheat on my wife, so therefore I'm good. No, no. Um, did I just say steal from my wife? You shouldn't steal from your wife either. Um, <laughs> but when you try to control your life, what you're saying is, God, I, I, I have this. I'm okay. I don't need you. And there's one or two ways that we go about doing that. Some people go about doing it by just saying there is no God. <laughs> There's no God, so I, I, there's a certain lifestyle that I want. Um, there's a certain standard that I want to live at, and I will do whatever it takes at all costs to get that particular life. Um, the way our culture uses it is, well, I'll do whatever it takes to be happy. Whatever it takes. If I'm in a relationship with someone and they're not making me happy, I'll end the relationship. If I'm in a job and I have something to do and I can get ahead and make more money, even though it's going to make other people unhappy but make me more happy, I'm going to do it. That, that, it's you are. You are God. There's, just no, there's no other way to say it, but you are God in your own life. You say there is no God, therefore you, you say what's best for you. That's another saying you're just a God. You're a little G God. On the flip side, there's church people. There's very religious people. The way that they try to avoid God is by doing everything that God says to do. And even that could be a form of darkness. Now, that sounds weird, but here's what I mean. When you do and you obey scriptures for the, for the, just for the reason to obey, to avoid God's wrath or avoid God's judgment because you think somehow you have a view of God that he's coming after you or you obey God um, to be seen as a good person, here's what happens in you. You, because you're able to obey, because you're so moral, because you're such good Christians, you're so insensitive to other people. 
that there's a sense of self-righteousness. And so when you find about the girl in the congregation who, who's pregnant and she's not married, you can't help but look down your nose towards her. When you find about people who are doing and committing sins that you would have never done, you can't help but look down your nose and go, look at these people. And what happens is, and I know this is sensitive, but what happens is when they get things that you can't get, remember counseling a couple of a woman who was so furious. She was a, te- she was a teacher of teenagers in a high school um, in inner city, and she was watching these young girls um, who were getting, having babies, and they were having abortions. And she goes, that's so wrong. And I just looked at her, and I agreed with her. She goes, and I can't even have a kid. How dare God allow these, and she had some names for them, to have kids and not me. This is why that's darkness. That's a failure to understand how you became a Christian, which is grace. Undeserved gift. So on both sides, you have people who are doing exactly what God says and are the most self-righteous people. That's darkness. Because what you're saying is, if I do all these things, that's your way of control it. Then God now owes me. That all of us are in that position. That, that again, we walk in darkness at some point and we're afraid of being exposed. Um, as a church, my prayer, my prayer has been, especially these last six months, is that we would grow roots so deeper and that we would grow in a sense and a desire for holiness. And the only way we can do that is to take our sins and expose them. There's four things that I have here of what it means to get out of darkness for the Christian and the other Christian. One is run from your darkness, repentance. What are those things that you have in your life? You know it. They're, they're, they're pet sins. I have mine, you have yours. Where do you go to? What, are the, what is that thing or those particular things that you don't want people to know about, but you, you, you have it? Um, you can call it an addiction. You can call it a hobby. You can call it, uh, I kind of minimize it. Oh, it only happens once or twice a week. No, no, it's sin. And it's what God says is what brings you to darkness. And you make a pattern out of it that it becomes a lifestyle. Whatever that is, run from it. Drop it and run from it. Well, it may cost me a relationship. Drop it and run from it. It may cost me my job. God has to be worth it. If he's not worth it, you can continue to live in darkness. The, the, the next thing is cry out to God. That means pray to him. The, the, I remember being in, in college when God saved me, and I finally realized that I was a mess um, it, it took an act of God to show me that I was a mess, that to expose me, and it took a while. I, I can remember being in a, in, a, in a church service that my mom invited me to. Uh, actually, funny story. Um, I went home to California, and I was going to go to a bachelor party, which all types of bad that can happen there. And um, my mom said, hey, before you go to this party, will you come to this revival? I don't know if you've ever been to a revival. Um, <laughs> it's about as many people that are in this room, but like in the smallest room you have. Um, it was an uh, African-American pastor from New Orleans that had a nice rag, which I've been trying to get ever since, just to, every time I preach, just to, just to do it, you know? And um, the, he was teaching from Daniel chapter 5, and there's a, there's a uh, passage there that talks about the writing on the wall, and, um, and the, it was in the midst of a party, and he kept saying over and over again, the party! And everyone would go, it's over, right? And, then they, <laughs> and so I invited my buddy David with me, and we're sitting there going, is he talking to us? Like, what's, what's going on? It was the first time I felt conviction. So we're driving. I'm like, man, I'm not going, man. When you guys get done, man, call me tomorrow. I'll go play basketball with you guys. I can't go to that party, man. That preacher, man, he was killing me, right? Never talked to the guy since, but it was like, it was that moment that I thought, man, I think he's talking to me. Um, I cried out to God. I literally got on my knees and said, God, I need help. Um, if we are going to be not just individuals, but a church that walks from being in darkness to being in light, prayer has to be important. It it just can't be a a tag on like, yeah, I'll pray before I eat. Like prayer has to be not even on the list of items. It's got to be central to everything that we do. The the third thing here of, of getting out of darkness is get to know God better. 
Um, cultivate a relationship with God, um, personally and in community. To cultivate a relationship with God is the way that you get to know God better is by his word, that you have to discipline yourself. We don't like that word, but you have to discipline yourself to understand God's word because the more that you expose yourself to God, the more you understand who he is, the more you'll understand his love, the more you'll understand his holiness, the more you'll understand his character, and it will begin to shape and to form your life. That if you are truly a child of God and you look to Jesus, there's no way that you can constantly come to God's word and not be convicted. And conviction is a good thing because it will draw you um, out of darkness into the light, which is Jesus Christ. Um, lastly here, all of these things that I, that I mentioned, essentially running from darkness, crying out to the Lord and getting to know God better, are all meaningless if, 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 we, don't, if we don't see verse 20. Verse 20 says this, For everyone who does wicked hates things Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to light, lest his works should be exposed. What you have to do is you have to come before God and you have to come before people. I'm convinced, thoroughly convinced, because it was my life, that there are many of you here today, you have something that you need to confess to people. You do. You have something that you need to confess to God. And the, the thought process, again, I'm just speaking of my own self, the thought process is, I already told God he always forgives me. He already forgives me. I already told God. He's got grace for that. And, and you can never preach grace enough. I don't believe that you can. However, there is a way that you preach grace, God's undeserved gift of which he gave Jesus Christ. He forgives us past, present, and future. There's a way that you could teach it in such a way that people, um, people allow sin to be safe. And that, we, that that's not what grace should do. Because you know you're forgiven by God, you should be able to come before God and before others. Everything that we do in our service leads us to that response time, to confess our sin as we come to communion, and also to have prayer for people to pray for you. Um, if we are going to be a church that's a holy church that understands how to know God and how to grow in God and how to turn from darkness, we have to be transparent. Now, I'm not saying you should stand up right now and tell everyone around you your deepest, darkest sin. I'm just saying you need to tell somebody. Some of you guys, it's your wife. Some of you guys, it's your husband. Some of you, it's your roommates. And, and, and you just got to be honest before the Lord. What's, what's Christians, what can sap your, your relationship with God is hiding sin. Again, my first three years of being a Christian, I was the best at that. Oh, everything's good. Oh, just reading Exodus again, right? <laughs> and my life was a mess. It was a mess. It wasn't until I just, I, I have to come clean. And it's the most freeing thing in the world. If we are going to run from darkness, we have to run the light. Amen? How to draw near to the Lord. Last, last point here. Verse 21. Very, very simple. Verse 21 says this. But whoever does what is true comes to light so that whoever does what is true comes to light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. Meaning as we repent from darkness, there's a sense where there's action, that, that faith in Jesus Christ um, will have action. In the same way that we said that God's love necessitated action, he gave in response to us looking at 316. If we are going to be Christians who believe in 316 that God gave his son, we can't stop there. We have to get to verse 21. 
And to get to verse 21, we have to admit our darkness, um, confess our sins, walk with Jesus, and get to a point where we literally have an ongoing life. The best way to say this is not that he comes to light. This is not just a one-time act, but this is an ongoing lifestyle of repentance and faith. We say it all the time here. The way that you become a Christian is by repentance and faith, and the way that you grow as a Christian is through repentance and faith. This is what it's happening. And the good works that we produce even the good works, it says, um, is carried out by God. I would have you underline that for this reason. Some people think, I become a Christian and I work as hard as I can the rest of my life. Um, there's a part in that you become a Christian by grace, you do nothing, and you grow as a Christian by working hard by God's grace and a response to God's grace. It's looking to John 3.16 that we can do John 3.21. That, that, that's a message for Christians. It's an ongoing life of personal and corporate holiness of which we seek God. Again, as a young person, one of my biggest pet peeves of my own life when I look to the generation ahead of us is going, why are you guys so holy? And I look to their life and all the stuff that we call old school or old hat, they do it. I get up in the morning, I read my Bible, I write in my journal, I pray, I kiss my wife, I go to work, I come home, I kiss my wife, I kiss my kids, we eat, and we go to bed. And we look at that lifestyle and go, don't want it. Don't want it. Can't we do like a gospel-centered thing or something like that and have a good time? Um, holiness is going in the same direction for a long time. It doesn't mean perfection. It means looking to the one who is perfect. It's bringing your sins to bear. It's coming before people, brothers and sisters, praying with one another, seeking God over and over again. If we get John 3.16, right? then we'll get John 3.21. Amen? And, and as I close, I want to close with a quote here because my fear is always in teaching such a familiar passage, especially John 3.16, where God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life is that we get old um, and we get, oh, I know that already. That must be a message for somebody else. And yet, another thing that I've always wondered, if I can go back to talk to people in the Bible, I wonder if they ever use words like mundane or boring or if that's something that we've created because we've gotten sick of God, that we've gotten sick of the gospel, that we want something totally new. I've read this quote before um, in talking about how we should be able to glory um, in the gospel. I heard someone say this week that the mature believer is easily satisfied because they're ultimately satisfied in God. They don't need a great sermon. They don't even need a great church because they have a great God. Here's what G.K. Chesterton walks in talking about how we should have faith-like children who understand God. It says this, Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. Every parent in here goes, oh yeah, oh yeah. You ever notice kids, they watch the same movie over and over and over again. I am like Lightning McQueened out, Right? It says this, for grown-ups, for grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony, but perhaps God is strong enough to exult monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we've all sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. My prayer is that we never get sick of God so loved the world that he gave his son. 
so that those of you in this room who've never believed would know that God so loved you that he gave his son Jesus because he's after you. You may not believe in him today, but you will believe in him because God's love will trump your sin, and that is good news. And for every single one of us here who's already believed in that, whether we were young kids or whether we've been Christians for six months, that we should look at that over and over again and say, God, you are so good, you are so great that you love me before the foundation of this world and you will love me throughout all eternity. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray as we close this series that we would continue to encounter your son, Jesus. Pray that we would be able to be filled with the Holy Spirit and we would understand, Lord, by faith that we are your children and that we could look to you, Father, and say, do it again and do it again and do it again. Father, for whatever reason, it's easy for us to come to you when we first become Christians and to lay our sin before you. And for some reason, God, the older we get in our spirit, Lord, the easier it is for us to hide. That is not a sign of maturity. And so, Lord, we pray that you would humble us, Lord, that we may have a sense of honesty because of your grace. We thank you that we can come to a moment where we can respond to you, Lord, that we can, we can recalculate our lives, Lord, around you and, Lord, around the truth of Jesus. And Father, I pray as we enter into this season of summer, Lord, and as it gets hot, that we would mind ourselves, Father God, of your beauty. We would mind yourself of your grace, that you would sustain us and that you would guide us, Lord. And I pray again for our mothers, for our families, for our fathers, for our children, and for our singles as a church, Lord, that we would grow in holiness, as elders, that we would grow in holiness. So, Father, we ask that you be glorified in and through all that what we do and say. In Christ's name, amen.